If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This becomes the event after which Britain begins walking backwards into the future. And you know, that is our characteristic stance. Oh, we aren't what we were. That was Jeremy Paxman talking about the effects of the First World War. It would have been a really startling range of colours, completely nothing like this known really in, in the rest of, of Iron Age and Roman Britain. And that was Dr Miles Russell describing one of Fishbourne's many famous mosaics. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Matt Elton and I'm the books editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com slash subscribe hyphen today for the latest subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, head to historyextra.com slash digital. Before we begin, we have a short advertisement break. Listeners to the History Extra podcast are eligible for a fantastic offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Stay tuned to this podcast for details of your 10% discount. Journalist, broadcaster and author Jeremy Paxman has turned his attention to several key periods of British history before, most notably in his 2012 series, Empire. Now, as part of the BBC's First World War centenary lineup, his new series, Britain's Great War, explores how the conflict affected the lives of people around the UK. I met up with him in London to find out more. Talking, I suppose, first of all, about the big, the big picture. To what extent can we understand the start of the war because of those relations between kind of European countries? Well, I think we, I mean, yeah, the shorthand version is assassination in Sarajevo, the Austro-Hungarians decide to hold Serbia to account, Serbia's in alliance with the Russians, Russia's in alliance with France, the Germans have given the Austrians a blank check, they have a war plan, the war plan necessitates invading Belgium. That's the shorthand version. Uh, So, it's kind of 
That question, why on earth did we go to war to protect the territorial integrity of a basically pointless country like Belgium? Uh, I don't think that's what it was about. Mm. I think it was about the worth of your signature on a treaty. The Germans, of course, had also signed the, or the Prussians had signed the 1839 Treaty of London, hadn't they? Um, and if, you're a, if you are a great power, as Britain was the greatest power in the world, it had no choice if it wished to continue being taken seriously but to uh, honour the treaty. Mm. Uh, I think there's that. And I think that's the other thing that was largely, I think, we never quite explicitly stated, was it, that there was a matter of vital national interest, given that our concern for 200 or more years had with continental Europe had been merely to ensure that no power became menacing enough to yeah. threaten the, uh, the British Isles and the British Empire. Uh, clearly, a successful German campaign in the war uh, would have brought the Germans to the shores of the North Sea uh, and would have presented such a threat to what were seen as vital interests. Of course, in the event, you know, it turned out, it turned out to be the cataclysm that that finished off, I finished off Britain in many respects. Mm, yeah. I mean, the, the empire was actually bigger at the end of the war than it had been when the war began, but the country was broke. Mm. And I do think that that's the point. I mean, BBC History magazine feeds on this appetite to know what happened in our past. Mm. But, you know, there are distinguished people, of course, who read this magazine. But they are in a minority. We, all of us who are interested in history, are in a minority. People don't, by and large, any longer know very much about any kind of history. And I'll make two points, then I'll shut up. <laughs> One of them is that um, the First World War is at the point now where it has firmly gone from family memory, as in the photographs on the wall and the rest of it, to history. And furthermore, a history seen through a particular coloured prism of uh, you know, 1960s, the 1960s social revolution. You know. Oh, what a lovely war in Blackadder and irreverence generally and indi belief in individualism, uh, general truculence with governments, distrust of authority and the rest of it. Um, I think that's the, 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 uh, the first point uh, about this. The second thing is that I think generally, when you look at what it did to the country, this becomes the event after which Britain begins walking backwards into the future, and you know that is our characteristic stance. Oh, we aren't what we were, and it's combined with a pr profound political ignorance. I'm not sure that uh, historically ignorance. I'm not sure that it's really terribly helpful in trying to forge a, a future. I think we need to know where we've come from to know where, why, how we got where we are now. But an excessive preoccupation with former greatness is probably something that we need to discard and recognise that we are, you know, we are just another European nation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to what extent do you think it is possible to get into the mindset of people in 1914? Do you think that's possible? I think it's quite difficult. It was a very different kind of society, but that's what I tried to do. 
Mm. And some of the th- positions you find people espousing are quite surprising. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and incomprehensible from the standpoint of the uh, 21st century sensibility. Mm. But um, I think it's, I think it's, well, I hope it's possible. That's the whole, <laughs> that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's true. I mean, I mean, you talk there about the surprising thing. What most surprised you about British society before the outbreak of the war? Um, how, how insular it was, despite the fact that it sat at the centre of this enormous biggest empire the world had ever seen, it was extremely insular and um, ignorant of the outside world. How innocent it was in very, very many respects. Uh, how stratified it was. Um, I mean, we go on, there's nothing that... We live in a kind of, I think, a very solipsistic, many people would say selfish Mm. sort of society now. And that is one of the reasons we find it difficult to understand the, the the collective enthusiasm in those early days of the war and then what the collective experience, the shared experience of wearing a uniform, eating, sleeping, going to the lavatory alongside other individuals. Uh, you know, this was, this was a... Uh, I don't want to suggest that people enjoy the trenches. Clearly the trenches were horrible, but the, the shared endeavour is something that is extremely unusual in our society now. And, you know, the military experiences, the, you know, the, the proposal... Britain had, as you know, a very small but pretty professional army by the standards of the time. But when our current government finishes downsizing the army, I see another 3,000 soldiers that can be made redundant in January. The army will be, you know, it'll be, the, it'll be big enough to be put into Wembley Stadium, mm. the entire army. It will be smaller than the expeditionary force sent to France. Well, this is, this is an amazing turnaround. Mm. And the military experience, to re- go back to my previous point, the military experience is now very, very remote from people's lives. The military are a very, very minority tribe in Britain. Mm. Um, I mean, that touches on a couple of things, which is the, the kind of confusion we have when we try to understand how willing people seem to have been to join up. Yes. Um, other than that shared experience that they perhaps hoped they would have, I'm not sure. Are there any other factors that we can say cause that eagerness or that apparent eagerness? I think there was a much greater sense of duty. Duty is an absolutely dead idea now because it's been entirely elbowed aside by a belief in individualism. Uh, but I think that there was a sense of that. There was also, I, I, let's be honest about it, if all your mates are rushing down and signing on, no one has any idea of what the war is going to be like. Um, it's an adventure. Yeah. Of course it is. There was a lot of ignorance and innocence. Yes. Mm. But um, I, think, I think a sense of duty played a part. And then certainly in some of the... I don't want to be classist about this, but certainly among some of the 
recollections of, of junior officers who joined up, they appear to have conceived it as the thing for which they had been educated, which was you know, the function of a lot of those schools as their memorial roles testify yeah, now. Yeah. So I, I don't suggest it was exclusive to that. I think there was, uh, to, to that sector of society, I think it was pretty widespread. But, um, you know, inevitably, the recollections of the time are more skewed towards the people who kept diaries and wrote liter literate uh, letters home. There's the great gap, of course, in understanding all of this is the letters in the other direction. Yes. You know, you get lots of families kept letters uh, from men serving at the front or in the navy or whatever. Uh, but the soldiers, you know, you can understand it once the letter's been read and read and read again. What's the point of keeping it? Another letter comes along. Yeah. And there aren't very many. Uh, so what they felt on the home front is a harder thing to get at from a correspondence point of view, I think. But there's sufficient about, I think, to construct a pretty reasonable portrait of a society which was completely galvanised by the war, completely galvanised. Uh, no one was unaffected by it. And that's what interests me, because what that total immersion did was to change the society. Yeah. How successful were attempts to cover up the reality of what was happening? on the continent? I don't, you know, I think this is a bit of a myth as well. I think people were pretty, after, after the war had been going on for, once you went to 1915, really, it would have been very, very difficult, surely, to conceal the, the reality of, it's what we always talk about the trenches, the reality of, of trench life, because, it was common by then to very large numbers of people who were coming home on leave or writing yeah. letters home on leave. Now, hearing about it or reading about it is not the same as experiencing it, but I don't buy this argument that it was hidden from people. Yeah. The scale of casualties there were attempts to uh, conceal. Kitchener, you know, Kitchener's famous remark, get out of my way, you drunken swabs, which had been in, actually in the Sudan, I believe. Uh, typified the, the view of the, of, of the media and that was why the, Mon, the famous Mons Dispatch after the British army suffered such a terrible beating up and retreat uh, at Mons why it had such a sensational effect uh, and that's when you get this huge rush to the colours I mean people joining up at the rate of 20,000 a day 33,000 on the, on the day after the I think it was the day after the after the Mons Dispatch is published, thirty three thousand people signed up in a single day. It's hard to imagine that number of people just. Well, I think it is, uh, and you know, it wasn't it wasn't difficult to sign up. I mean, you had to be, I think you had to be five foot three and be mm. be able to inflate your chest to thirty two inches. It's not. It's not. It's, I know. It's dentistry is the very interesting one. The number who who were refused on grounds of the, 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 their teeth weren't good enough because yeah. poor people didn't have access to dentists. Yeah. And, I mean, there's, a very, there's quite an amusing note from a man who said that they rejected me for my teeth. Are we supposed to be biting? <laughs> <laughs>
And there's another big myth about the war, which you do touch on in the book, which is this idea of um, incompetent officers and noble but kind of doomed um, servicemen. Do you think that's, that's true in any way? I think this is the lines led by donkeys yes, argument, yeah. isn't it? And it's usually referring to the senior officers, the generals. Yeah. Well, I think one only has to pause for about three seconds to think whether that is entirely believable. Alan Clark wrote that book, The Donkeys. I mean, I think it's the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. He was never able to produce a, a plausible source for the quote. But let's leave the, let's leave the, the quotation aside. Um, the accusation, as repeated, for example, in the bit of dialogue in Blackadder, when Blackadder and, and his men are being sent out over the top, and General Melchett, Stephen Fry, says, um, I'll be right behind you, and Blackadder mutters under his breath, yes, about 35 miles behind. This is of a piece with the boneheaded generals. Well, what general wishes to fight a battle that he knows he will lose? Um, sometimes, you, I guess you have to, but to set out to throw away the lives of your men and make defeat more likely seems to me so asinine mm. that it just, it just it really does defy belief. And there were perfectly good reasons for the generals not being in the front line, mainly because in the front line, you had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Absolutely no idea. When communication, I mean, there were, there, there were, radio had been invented, but there were large, large, large installations. It wasn't, there wasn't portable radio. Telephones depended upon lines being made, yeah. which yeah. is supposedly buried. You can't do that in the middle of an attack. No. You're relying upon runners, messenger dogs, carrier pigeons, mm. primitive forms of semaphore. This, this is really, really crude and unreliable. Mm. Uh, you need some place that you can get a, you can get a bigger picture yeah. than sitting in the trench yourself. So you have to be that far back to well, yeah. I mean, yeah. yes, mm. yes. It is true that lots of chateaux were were, were commandeered, but but you needed large buildings. Yeah. to put the whole of the staff in. And, of course, the staff were, were hated. Mm. I mean, that Siegfried Sassoon poem, Good morning, good morning, the general said when we met him last week on our way to the line. Yeah. Uh, now, the men that he smiled at are most of them dead, and we're cursing his staff for incompetent swine. Well, that was a, an authentic point of view in the, the, uh, in the infantry. Mm. Uh, but... I think probably inevitable, and I can't see another way you could have you could have organised it. No. Okay. So, I mean, why do you think that view has been so pervasive? Why do you think people tend to see the war in those terms now? Because it stands absolutely as the polar opposite to the spirit that's been promoted since the 1960s, which is one of, as I said earlier, you know, distrust of authority, individual enterprise, hedonism. Now, these things are all. It's, it's, it's the absolute antithesis yeah. of, of that. And so it's a, it's a pretty easy target. And I'm not saying that, the, <laughs> far from it. It was a horrible, horrible experience for everybody. I mean, London was bombed. Mm. But, you know, the, the war was visited upon Britain. And I'm not trying to suggest that, that it was anything. That, of course, the main slaughter uh, occurred in the 
military operations, but it consumed the entire country. Mm. I don't suggest it was a happy experience. It, far from it. It was absolutely bloody miserable. But it's quite clear that the sense of shared endeavour was something that was meaningful to people. And that, I think, is something that we've kind of we've sort of lost now. Mm. Going on to trench life, were there any aspects of that that surprised you or that you didn't know about before you started researching? Uh, well, how trenches were built is quite interesting. I was, I had, you know, we all know that the trenches ran for, what is it, 450 odd miles from the North Sea down to, to Switzerland. And one assumes or I had assumed that they, they ran more or less in straight lines. They zigzagged so that if enemy soldiers got into the trench, they didn't have a clear line of fire down it and to deflect any artillery blast. Um, I think that once you start thinking about the reality of it, how, for example, were men in the trenches fed? Well, they were fed containers from containers of food that have been carried up from the support lines. And they've got cold before it. Cold, them. yeah. And the, the sheer tedium of McConaughey stew or plum and apple jam and bread yeah. uh, must have been um, awful. There were, to, when it was cooked, it was generally speaking cooked uh, uh, on an open fire, the open fire, the wood of the open fire was old shell cases. Shell cases had nails in them. At the end of the fire, of course, you then had a number of nails uh, lying around on the ground, which would make horses lame when they trod on them. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that did get figured out reasonably quickly. Um, sanitary arrangements, I think, are really very interesting. I mean, if you've got thousands of men living and dying and you know, eating and sleeping, they're obviously going to have to excrete. <laughs> and how that was done, and there are, as I think I remark, and there, was a there were designated shipwallers in every platoon, platoon. None of whom appears to have kept his diary <laughs> for understandable reasons, I think. It's one of the less glamorous things you could, you could, jobs you could have. And the rats, because everyone knows about the rats, I suppose, don't they? Mm. But... I love that remark. I think it's from a was it from a corporal where he talks about you can walk down the trench after dark and you can kick a rat every two paces. And I can't remember where the other one what the other reference was. Someone you could lie in your dugout reading a book by candlelight and see the light reflected in the eyes of the watching rats. Um, and you're right that um, we tend to feel the war now more than think about it. Yes. How do you think we can kind of rectify that? Do you think we can change that now? There clearly is, there clearly is work going on in schools because you see the, the letters uh, or the essays or the cards that have been laid on particular graves in the war grave cemeteries in Flanders or, or elsewhere on the front. Um, where, so there are some teachers who are trying to get their pupils to understand what the experience was of a local lad joining up. Yeah. But 
And I guess that's probably quite a good way to do it, but there's not nothing like enough of it being done. I mean, it's it seems to me to be to be taught very much at a macro level, and the only way we we're going to get to grips with it is to is to look at it through the eyes of individuals at the time. Mm. So, it's education, you think, is the primary thing that can help to change. Yes, and I don't just mean education in schools. I mean all of us. Yeah. Um, there are now, you know, there are grandparents who've grown up with the, with the with the with the very distorted, sentimental view of what it was what it was all like. That it was, you know, the idea of sacrifice uh, was was clearly understood at the time. And there was no need to couple it with the adjective pointless, which is where we are now. It has been pointless sacrifice for, what, 50 or more years. Uh, in fact, more than that, really. You know, the, 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 the great slew of anti-war literature begins, begins after the war, really, uh, and then goes right through to Blackadder and beyond. Mm. So you think the idea that the war was in some way a failure needs to be tackled? Well, it was a failure in that it cost a tremendous number of lives, but there were there were positive things that, that came out of it. I'm not saying it was worth the cost, uh, but, you know, in the end, the Germans lost that war, and what... And people always go on about how this, the, the Versailles settlement uh, was one of the main causes of the Second World War. But who knows? I mean, what might have transpired in Europe had it all been run from Berlin, which would have been the consequence of a German victory? We just don't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it finished Britain in many respects, but they did endure. And they, they endure to victory. And, and for that, at an appalling, appalling cost. But I think that's worthy of some respect. And not just to say they were all gullible fools. That was Jeremy Paxman. Britain's Great War starts on BBC One in the UK at 9pm next Monday, 27th of January. The accompanying book... Great Britain's Great War is on sale now, published by Viking. You can read more from my interview with Jeremy in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, and also include features on the reputation of Charles I, the Crusades, and the legacy of Nelson Mandela. Pick up your copy now in any good newsagent or on one of our digital formats. It's now time for a short advert. Listeners to the History Extra podcast are eligible for a fantastic offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools. With over 10 years' experience, the 100-strong Dublin, New York, and Oregon-based customer support team is on hand 24-7. Seamless e-commerce solutions mean that your business can be taking money in minutes on a website that is scaled to look beautiful on any computer or handheld device. It starts at only £5 a month, and if you buy it for a year, you'll get a free domain name. So start your free trial today. No credit card required. 
And as a History Extra podcast listener, you'll receive 10% off your first purchase by using the offer code HISTORY. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Before our next interview, it's now over to our website editor, Emma McFarnan, with the latest history news. Part of a pelvic bone, most likely to be from King Alfred or his eldest son Edward, has been discovered in Winchester. Not in an unmarked grave being examined by experts, but in a box in museum storage. In what researchers described as a fluke, a piece of an adult male pelvis was discovered in a box of bones at Winchester Museum. The bones had been recovered during a 1995-99 community excavation. The bones were recently re-examined by Dr Katie Tucker, researcher in human osteology at the University of Winchester, after the exhumation of remains in an unmarked grave proved fruitless. In other news, new research suggests that while we might assume dieting to be a modern phenomenon, in fact it originates in the 18th century. As early as the Georgian period, diet doctors began to recommend strict, low-fat meals and newspapers featured adverts for tonic and diet pills. Research carried out by Dr Karina Wagner from the University of Exeter reveals that by the mid-Victorian period, fighting fat had become a pastime for a large part of the population. Meanwhile, the BBC has released a series of interactive online guides on the First World War. Using original material, historian and presenter Dan Snow, the choir's Gareth Malone and journalist Kate Aidy explore different aspects of life during the conflict. Snow considers life on the front line for British soldiers, while A.D. asks what the war really did for women. Thanks, Emma. And for all the latest history news, don't forget to check out our website at historyextra.com. 
Fishbourne Roman Palace in West Sussex was once one of the most sumptuous buildings in Roman Britain, with a building footprint greater than that of Buckingham Palace. But who lived there, and why did the palace fail to prosper? My colleague, Charlotte Hodgman, met Dr Miles Russell at the site to find out more. So, Miles, we're standing in what would have been the entrance hall to Fishbourne Roman Palace, is that right? Yes, yes. I think uh, most visitors, when they come to this site, don't really appreciate it, it, its size and scale mm. because the, the North Wing alone is, is, is quite a, a large area of Roman building that, that's covered with the mosaics. Yeah. But uh, when you actually come out into the gardens, you appreciate that, that slightly less than half of the building is, is still preserved in, in this space. It is an immense footprint. Yeah. It, it's about 150 metres square. So in size and scale, it would have rivaled Buckingham Palace. It, it is an immense Roman structure. I mean, I had no idea it was that big when we were, you were leading us out of the, the sort of the visitor part and across the gardens. We were trekking quite a, quite a way before <laughs> we got to the entrance, the entrance hall. So... Um, when was the site actually found? Uh, the site was first found in 1960. I mean, traces of it were known about really since the 19th century. There were yeah. little bits of mosaics found here and there and bits of walls. But no one had tied the whole thing together. And it wasn't until 1960 when uh, they were actually digging a water main just in the field to the north of Fishbourne. There was uh, a wall and a series of mosaics were actually hit. Um, okay. At which point archaeologists came in and, and started digging it. At that stage, I think people suddenly realised just how immense um, this particular site was. Uh, And really nine years' worth of excavations led by Barry Cunliffe uh, then thankfully led to the Sussex Archaeological Society buying the land uh, and preserving it full-time, preventing any any further development across the site. So when they started finding bits like that, they realised it was part of a bigger... Yes, yes. ...the odd bit of Roman... It was bigger, certainly, than, than they were expecting, bigger than most Roman villas that they were aware yeah. of. And at that stage, even by 1960, they were aware that the, the, the scale of it was not just immense, but the, the luxur- luxury side mm. of it, the, the mosaics, the quality of the wall plaster, yeah. the actual nature of the site far outstripped any other site known at that point in, in Roman Britain. I mean, so today, you, you, how much can we actually visit and actually see um, when you actually visit the... The mosaics Most visitors today, when they come to the site, are looking just at the North Wing, and right. that, that, that's fair enough because that's where the the best preserved mosaics really were. You can still see where the 1960 uh, mechanical digger ripped her <laughs> into part of a mosaic, but the mosaics actually housed there. They're some of the earliest recorded from the British Isles. So at yeah. the very end of the first century AD, there's a series of geometric black and white uh, mosaics, but there's also some later um, coloured mosaics, and certainly the the boy and the dolphin mosaic mm-hmm. is the most famous one from the site, okay. and it's one of the best preserved anywhere in the British Isles. And it's it's correct to call it a palace, isn't it, rather than a villa? Yes. I mean, a, a villa in the strict sense, in, mm. in, in as far as Roman Britain goes, is a, is a farm. It, it's a farm. It's the centre of an agri- agricultural landscape. It's right. doing well. The owners are gradually buying more and more wealth and adding more rooms to their, their house. So if you think of it as a, as a farm that's becoming a stately home. Okay. Fishbourne isn't a place of production. It isn't a place where wealth is generated. It's a place where wealth is spent. Yeah. So if you imagine like the, the modern equivalent of perhaps a, a, a celebrity or a, a modern football player, huge amounts of, of cash, and they're spending it as extravagantly as possible. So this is one immense build mm-hmm. with all the, the luxuries of Rome in it. So it, what we're really seeing is a big explosion of a building. Uh, and over the next 200 years, it's gradually declining and it's contracting and starting to fall about fall apart because the level of wealth is not there to maintain it so it's okay. direct contrast to a villa which gets bigger and more successful and and wealthier as time goes on this starts big but gets smaller over time so oh, okay so it, it was built in different stages then 
Well, the, the, there's a series of earlier stages here, uh, but the, the main palace that people see laid out in front of them is really some point between about 75 and 90 AD. This whole structure is built in, in one go. Right. So it is okay. uh, it, it really in size, it's unrivaled, certainly in Northern Europe. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big slice of Italy that's been dug up and really just dumped on the south coast in England. So you would think, judging by the size of it, that it would have been owned by somebody quite wealthy and perhaps somebody royal, is that right? Or It's, it's impossible to say <laughs> at the moment because what would really clinch the deal is if we had an inscription from the site saying, you know, hic habitat, here lived yeah. so-and-so. Um, is that not, was that normal for villas of the time? Well, for something like this, we're really searching for a, a personality. It's such a big site, it's such a, an important site and such a, you know, built in, in one go. Mm. You'd expect it to be an important individual, perhaps a, a civil servant, yeah. perhaps a Roman administrator. I think the fact that there's about nine or ten other similar sites constructed at the same time across Sussex, none quite to the same size as this, yeah. but it does suggest that we're not looking at, at one Roman administrator. We're probably dealing with the native aristocracy, Britons who've made it good, mm. who've got a sudden injection of cash and are showing themselves to be they're, they're spending their money in really extravagant ways trying to be Roman so Fishbourne's the largest but we've got other ones at Southwick, Angmering uh, Eastbourne, Brighton Pulborough yeah. so it, it's one of a number so in that sense I suspect it's probably a Briton uh, it's probably okay. an aristocrat who has sold their soul to Rome really yeah. has been given a loan or a cash reward and is building in a, in a nice classic Roman style so probably somebody who's never seen Rome it, well, it's, the thing is, we know that there's a number of Britons in the first century AD who have been to Rome. Mm. They've grown up in Rome before coming back to, to Britain. Right. So they are coming back with a real sense of, of what civilization means, and they're probably trying to recreate that here. Okay. So w we know at the time this is built that there's, there's at least two Britons. Um, we've got nice old Celtic names. They've uh, become very Romanized. We've got Tiberius Claudius Togidubnus, who's recorded from an inscription in Chichester, right. um, just you know, two, three miles up the road. We've got a, a gold ring found near the site of a Tiberius Claudius Catuarus. Both are potential candidates for living in this, this particular site. Yeah. It might be, might be neither of them, but I suspect it, it probably is a Briton who has on the Roman side and has been well rewarded for their services. It's a Roman mystery then. It is, it is. It's, it is. <laughs> it's a site like this, it, it demands, people come in, demand to know who, who lives here. Yeah. Uh, and sadly at the moment, we just don't know for sure. Okay. Well, should we go and have a look inside at some of the mosaics? Yes, Brilliant. Right, so we're now standing in front of one of the most famous mosaics, I think, that um, or of Britain, really, isn't it? The, the the is it Cupid or the boy riding a dolphin? Yes, yeah, it's a little Cupid figure on a mm. on a dolphin. Um, the, the dolphin's quite sort of stylized. It look, looks doesn't look very dolphin-like. It's got a little sort of moustache <laughs> and very sort of strange tail. But you've yeah. got these other sort of sea creatures dancing around him. Yeah, it's uh, amazingly preserved, isn't it? It is. I mean, one of the things that strikes you when you look at the, a lot of these mosaics is because the the original palace site at Fishbourne was built on an earlier military site. There are pits, there are ditches, the mm. whole series of things that a lot of the floors are subsiding down into. This one is subsiding as well. The actual There's a great dish in the centre of it. Yeah. In, in a way, that's a good thing because it means that it's been out of the, the um, line of, of ploughing. A lot of the mosaics which are on the surface have got plough lines gouged through them. This one has been completely avoided by, by any of the, the ploughing activity. So it is beautifully preserved. Yeah, and I guess um, it, at, at its, in its day it would have been very bright 
um, very brightly coloured? Or yes, I mean it's it's, it's one of those things. Of course, um, unless it's continually washed down, the, the mm. colours do start to fade. But uh, if you sort of imagine this, um, and then also a series of, of purple and red and yellow walls around it, yeah. it would have been a really startling range of colours. Completely nothing like this known really in, in, in the rest of, of Iron Age and Roman Britain. So uh, it, it's a re- literally sort of a mind-blowing experience mm. coming into here, mm-hmm. seeing these floors, seeing the walls and the ceilings in that high state of decoration. Yeah, I mean, what room would this have been? Well, originally in the palace, the, the north wing that people come into today was uh, existed as a series of apartments. It looks as if they are arranged possibly for guests guest accommodation right so you've got two courtyards each has got its own dining room each has got its own bedroom uh, and reception area this is probably a, a private dining space okay. within one of those 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 areas um it's been developed over time what we're looking at this mosaic is mid second century ad mm-hmm. so it's at a time where the palace is becoming subdivided we're seeing separate ownership of, of discrete areas. So this may still be being functioning as a, as a dining room, but they've obviously, they, they've overlain the earlier black and white mosaics and they've really gone for a huge splash of colour. And, and who would have made these mosaics? I mean, would that be somebody's job? You know, uh... Yes, I mean, we don't really understand uh, how mo- mosaic making works. We talk no. in general terms today about mosaic schools. Uh, really, that's because there are certain styles similar in particular parts of Britain and northern France and Germany. Uh, but presumably people came along, mosaic makers um, from the continent, really by like a catalogue of, of designs and really say, you know, which particular deity you're looking for, which particular scene from classical mythology mm. do you want? Um, the central roundels, like the one we're looking at with the boy and dolphin, may have been constructed off-site, brought okay. in here and laid down. Um, sometimes you see this with a number of mosaics. The, the central piece is the most artistically intricate uh, and well-designed. Uh, and the areas around it are really just sort of infill. Mm. So it's almost perhaps a, a, a section is brought in and then someone's actually working on site who may not be the major craftsman is putting the, um, the, the geometric designs, the more simpler things around just to real, really sort of fill the space. So we can imagine those geometric black and white squares we can see around the mosaic yeah. may have been where furniture originally was situated. So you've got dining guests sitting around this space or looking at the... So mosaic. that would have been a fe- this would have been the feature of the room, this... this yes. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, this room wasn't the original dining room of the major um, palace. When we're looking at Fishbourne, the way it's organised, there's a discrete sort of separation of business areas, reception rooms, places of entertainment, places of right. guest accommodation. So the north wing is where guests may have been housed. And the eastern wing is really we've got a whole range of um, uh, uh, offices and, and private sort of workspaces. The south wing is, is sadly... Um, hasn't really been fully investigated because we've mm. got houses and a modern road across the top of it. But it does appear to be looking out towards the sea and that there may well have been a, a private garden. Okay. Uh, we, we there are deer bones around here as well, so they might have had their own sort of private herds. Uh, and the west wing is where you've got your major dining room to start with. That's probably where you've got your um, owner's bedroom mm-hmm. and other places of social entertainment. So you can really sort of segregate activities yeah. around the four wings of the palace, all looking in towards the central courtyard where you've got an ornamental garden so it was far from just a living space then oh yes yeah i mean whoever here has probably got a a range of uh, political responsibilities that they're obviously a a major landowner they may if they were a a british king to be owning a significant block of land Mm. it's up to them to implement the law to oversee any kind of um, uh, 
transactions that are going on to over to make sure that tax is being collected and so on. So yeah. they need to separate out places of entertainment, uh, places of, of social gathering, places where the outside world can come and meet them. So business, pleasure, all these sort of things have got to be organised around the palace. And these types of buildings, were they sort of status symbols, do you think, in Roman Britain? Completely, yes. I mean, there's, there's nothing like this known in Roman Britain, really, or the rest of northwestern Europe. So whoever's living here is, is a multimillionaire. They wants are, everyone to know it. <laughs> completely, I mean, being Roman in the first century AD is all about showing off. Yeah. It's you've got wealth, you flaunt it, you show off your status. So here is, is the, the, the richest and most important person in the country. Wow. And how does it compare to sort of other other villas and palaces of, of you know nearby and of the day there's 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 absolutely nothing like this um certainly around here there, there are smaller structures built about the same time yeah. which show a similar also sort of um level of internal decoration but they don't match the the, the scale of the footprint of mm. fishbourne palace now as we go on into the fourth um really the third and fourth centuries ad there are a number of villas like bigner like chedworth around the country that over time have evolved and have developed and eventually almost get to the same size that, that Fishbourne is to start with yeah. in the first century AD, but it's taken them 200 years to get there. This is a, a significant amount of wealth spent in one go, really, to create this. So it has a big impact. Um, really, I suppose it, it defines Roman tastes in Britain mm. because there's, there's nothing else like it beforehand. So other villas really are, are following along in the wake, and it might take 200 years to get there, but they, they eventually you know, they try to get there. They try to match the opulence that Fishbourne has so, so early on. And are there, can, can we see trends um, here that were, were also seen in, in Rome and in, in Italy at the time? Yes. I mean, when you're looking for comparisons, I suppose, really, of the, the major phase palace at Fishbourne, the best examples you can get, the best comparisons you can get are with what the emperors are building on the Palatine mm. in Rome. Of course, that, that's where we get the term palace from. So when we're looking at um, the sort of things that the Flavians, like the, the emperor Domitian, um, in these 90s AD, is creating a, a very similar style structure um, in, in Rome on the Palatine Hill, the, what's known as the Domus Flavia. And there you've also got entrance hall, you've got um, audience chamber, you've got a big dining room as well. They've got similar sort of layout mm. of features. So I think really if you're looking, whoever's building this here is looking for Rome, looking at Rome for inspiration. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's all the big designs in Rome that they are copying for their, their own little palace here. And so was, this, was this built in a kind of a wider phase of, you know, villa and palace building in, in Britain? No, I mean, it, it's odd. When you look across Britain, there are various, uh, certainly very significant regional differences. Mm. Sussex, uh, little parts of eastern Hampshire and, and parts of, of Kent and Essex are unusual because you see a, a very sudden brief flowering of Roman culture in certain areas. Yeah. Um, probably because you've got extremely wealthy aristocrats who want to be Roman and therefore are, are, are buying into that sort of system. Other areas like um, Dorset, uh, Western Hampshire, when you go to, into Somerset and, and the Cotswolds, there's not a lot of Roman activity to start with. There are Roman towns created, Roman roads, the infrastructure of government, but it takes a lot longer for prominent locals, for wealthy farm owners to buy into the Roman ideal uh, and to, to sort of buy mosaic floors, wall plasters and start adapting their houses. So really, if you want to see how Roman culture begins, what it meant, what it looked like, then somewhere like Fishbourne is, is the place to come and see it because this is where it all begins, this is where it all starts. And do we know how long Fishbourne um, was used for? It's... It, in, in the palatial state, it has a very short lifespan. So we're probably looking at the very end of the first century, the whole footprint of the palace is laid out. 
by the beginning of the second century, there are some major alterations going on. So a lot of the big spaces are being subdivided. Lots of bathhouses are being added. It looks as if rather than belonging to one person, you've got multiple occupancy going on inside the structure. And that second phase? That, that's the, really the second phase of the palace. Um, and that goes on. It's really a, a case of, of contraction. I mean, it's still in its major period of decline. Fishbourne far outstrips many of the other villas mm. in the country. Uh, but by the 260s, 270s AD, there is some, um, some areas that have been demolished. It, it's going undergoing another phase of, of renovation. Then there's a catastrophic fire at some point, probably in the late 270s to okay. beginning of 280s AD. And it's such a destructive um, activity, such a destructive fire that whoever is in the area probably thinks it's too expensive to do anything with the remains. What we see from them onwards is the, the site is really used as a quarry, stones being ripped out and oh. being reused. Yeah. There's no real use for the mosaics. You can't do anything with these little stones. So the floors are left in place, but the walls are removed. So really from 280 AD onwards, the palace is no more. Now, who, how that fire actually began, we don't know. There is a phase of building going on in it just by, as you come into the palace, there's a mm. little hypercourse area of underfloor heating that was never finished. It's possible it's the Roman equivalent of a, a builder dropping a cigarette in the sort of building material and an accidental fire burns yeah. the palace down. But we do know that in the later 3rd century AD, lots of coastal sites are being targeted by the first English, the, the Saxon pirates who are in the English Channel. Oh, wow. Fishbourne is a luxurious site right on the coast. It's an obvious target. If any site would have been um, attacked by those kind of freebooters, then, then this may have been it. Yeah. So the date sort of fits with that kind of um, piratical activity. Tell me a little bit about the, the piece we're standing in front of in the museum at the moment. Well, this is a, a life-size uh, portrait in, in Italian marble of a young man. Mm-hmm. And it was found during the 1960s excavations. It was in the foundations of the main palace. So it seems to actually relate to an earlier phase of building. And we know that there's a, what's often referred to as a, the proto-palace, which is the um, a, a, a sort of a, t- a house built in around about mid, mid-60s AD. It's mm-hmm. a Mediterranean-style house with a little courtyard. And it's really the primary civilian phase here on, on site. And this particular marble portrait seems to have been part of that house because when the palace was built, that house was taken apart and the major structural elements of it were smashed up and, and reused, often as foundation material. So here we've got this sort of irony that we've got um, a very well-made, very realistic image of a young man. Uh, you can see it, it, the hairstyle is, is very intricately done. Um, it, it's a wonderful piece of, of artwork. It's, it's part of a, what was probably a, a full life-size figure of an individual. Mm. And yet it has been smashed up and dumped mm. into the foundations. And you can see down one side there's a, there's a large area of burning damage which was when uh, the palace actually burns down in the the 280s AD and and that heat goes right the way down into the foundation levels so he's been very badly treated Um, but there's there's still enough there to to try and identify him now when this was dug up in the 1960s because it was a lifelike portrait there was a temptation to feel why would you have a portrait of a of a boy in the palace unless it was the owner's son or the owner as a boy Mm. um what we've done, what we've recently done from Bournemouth University is do a, a 3D scanner of that fragment so we can rebuild the rest of the face. We can also match it with images uh, known elsewhere around the Roman Empire. And we can sort of be fairly positive now that this is actually a portrait of the young Emperor Nero, aged about sort of uh, 14 or 15. At the time, he's been adopted by uh, his uncle Claudius to be the successor um, as, as Roman Emperor. So this is the sort of thing, if you imagine... 
I suppose, 1950s Russia, everyone's got a picture of Stalin over their mm. desk, or sort of the height of the British Empire, everyone's got an image of the Queen, uh, Queen Victoria. Then here we've got the palace owner has got members of the imperial family, people who are ruling the Roman Empire. There's lifelike portraits of them gracing that particular place. Now, of course, we know with Nero, he... At the end of his reign, he's one that becomes a very disliked individual. Um, he's treated as an enemy of the state. And after his suicide in AD 68, there's an attempt to eradicate every single image of him around the empire. So they had these sort of what's referred to as memory sanctions, okay. trying to eradicate, trying to remove his name, remove his image, totally take him out of history. And that seems to be what's happened here, because we, by doing the scan, we can make out all the different axe marks, chisel marks, attempts that, to fragment the head, to smash it into oblivion mm. before then it, it's, it's been uh, discarded. So there's a real that sort of outbreak of hatred towards that image in its final stages to, to completely break it up, remove it, and really just turn it into hardcore rubble for the foundations of the new palace. So what sort of things do you see underneath, underneath what, the damage that we can see here? Well, once you do the, the 3D scan, all the surface damage really comes away and you can see there is a, a massive uh, axe mark across the lower chin. Mm. There is a hammer mark around the eyes. They've really gone for the eyes and that's when they, the image has been fragmented. But quite nice from our point of view is actually doing the scan. You can see you've got this sort of very ornate hairstyle curving over the ear. Mm. But just above the ear, just as you're coming onto the forehead, there's fragments of what appears to actually be a laurel wreath. Mm -hmm. And there's another bit of it just emerging behind the ear. Now, in the first century AD, only emperors or members of the imperial family were permitted in portraits to have a laurel wreath, to have that sort of symbol of victory. So here we can also, having done the scan, we can say there's, there's no doubt this is an imperial, a member of the imperial family, um, a, a son of an emperor or someone who's about to be an emperor. But by matching those physical characteristics of the eyes, the nose, the mouth and that little bit of hair, mm. we can positively identify him as Nero. One of, probably one of the most famous Roman emperors of all time. That was Dr. Miles Russell, Senior Lecturer in Prehistoric and Roman Archaeology at Bournemouth University. You can also read his feature on Fishbourne and Roman extravagance in our January issue. And that's about all for this week. Before I go, there's just time to tell you about BBC History Magazine's two-day events in Bristol's M-Shed on the weekend of the 15th and the 16th of March. We begin with a Viking Day on the Saturday and follow that with a First World War event on the Sunday. In each case, you'll have the chance to hear talks from a range of leading historians and enjoy a buffet lunch. For full details and to buy tickets, visit historyextra.com slash events. And don't forget that we're always interested to hear your thoughts on the podcast and the magazine. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out some of your messages in future episodes. You can also reach the magazine on social media. We're on Twitter at historyextra and on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyextra. And do make sure to visit our website at historyextra.com for the latest news, features, image galleries and more. Next week, I'll be talking to Larry Seedentop about his new book exploring the origins of the moral beliefs that have shaped Western societies, and to John Julius Norwich about a collection of letters sent by his mother, Lady Diana Cooper. Do join us for that if you can. This podcast was recorded on location in London and Fishbourne, and produced by Jack Fletcher.